But today we're going to just look at the first bit as Paul continues just to really give thanks for them and what God's doing in their life. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We are primarily going to look at verses 5 to 10, but I want to read from verses 4 through 10, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 2, I'm sorry, verse uh, 5 through 10. Let me read to you, starting in verse 4. You guys there? Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia, who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we, don't, we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from, uh, from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And Father, I pray that you would help us to really understand uh, this great encouragement that Paul's wanting to give as he writes this letter to the, the believers in Thessalonica. We pray, Father, that we'd understand how this applies to us as believers. And Father, even as those who are still seeking, so wanting to know what it looks like to have the creator of the universe, work in their life. God, would you do that work in our hearts and minds? Would you convince us by your spirit? Father, we, we're asking you to do for us today what you did through Paul to the Thessalonians some 2,000 years ago. Please, we pray that your word would not just come forth inward only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. So Paul's writing to these people uh, because this small church, this young church, it's only a group of believers that have really only been believers for a matter of months when he writes this first letter. And they're going through some very serious persecution. I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, children being taken from families and whole families being ostracized from the greater family, people losing jobs, people being beat up. I mean, this is serious stuff going on for these people who had only been believers in Jesus for a matter of weeks or months. And so he's writing to encourage them, and he's really excited in writing to them, not because they're suffering so much, but because he'd gotten news back from his partner, Timothy, that these guys were really just, they're still going for it. They're still wanting to walk with Jesus, even though things are crazy difficult. And so when Paul says in verse 
4, when he says, knowing your election, my beloved brethren, he's, remember if we said last week, it's, it's a word for know that means to know by observation. He's saying, man, we are so excited about what we see in your life. We see that it's obvious. The, the evidence is there that God has indeed chosen you, initiated a work in your life, and if he's initiated, he's going to finish it. And he's really excited about that evidence. And we want to look at that evidence today. We want to look at well, what, what, do we sh- what should we expect? If God's working in our lives, what should we expect? If he has indeed initiated a, a work in our life, what should we expect to see? What should we be celebrating? What should we be pursuing? But before we do that, we have to understand a little bit about this idea of God choosing or God electing. Specifically, it's important that we see that when Paul's talking about the election of the Thessalonians. He's not at all saying, man, you guys, you suffered so much, you're such good people, that's why God chose you. No, not at all. In fact, we see throughout the scripture, one of the things that's really important that we understand is the Bible teaches that when God initiates a relationship with us, it really isn't because of us at all. It's because of Him. God says about His initiation to his relationship with Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. Listen, it says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all people. Anybody know how many people they were? Two. Husband and wife who weren't able to have children. He says, listen, he says, But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand that's out of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, God wanted Israel to know, listen, you need to know, I chose to, 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 to you, I, I initiated this relationship with you. I'm the one that took you from two a couple that was barren and made you into a mighty nation. I'm the one who's now delivering you out of Egypt, out of this bondage. Why? Simply because I love you and I chose you. Not because you deserved it, not because you can earn it, because I, I initiated it because I love you. You need to know this. Because one of the, 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 there's, there's kind of two sides to a, the same lie that we often believe in our hearts. Well, one side of the lie is, you know, God chose me because I'm a pretty good guy. I remember thinking this when I first became a Christian. I remember thinking, this is awesome. I don't have to go to hell. And God, you got a great guy on your team. We're going to rock it together, me and you. God's like, I, I, you know, I didn't pick you for that reason. <laughs> Patiently over years, made sure I realized that was the case. But the other side of the same lie is, oh, I, I don't think God would pick me. I'm, I'm really too bad. Or, or I, you don't know, John, I, I, still, I still do so many stupid things. I don't think God would ever choose me. As if his choice of you has something to do with you. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a responsibility that each of us has. We'll talk about that as we move forward. But it's important for you to understand that God initiates a relationship with us because he's God and because he's good and because he loves us. This is what motivates us, who are Jesus followers, to go out and tell others. Because we believe no matter what state a person's life is in, no matter who that person is, it's got nothing to do with their their race or their creed or their gender. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with that God is a lover of people, and so we bring the message of Jesus to them for that reason. Believing he wants to choose at least some of them. 
The famous American evangelist D.L. Moody used to pray, God, save those you've chosen and then choose some more. I think it's a good way for us to pray. Now, now the, the thing is, what Paul's saying to this church is he's wanting to encourage them that your suf- their suffering wasn't in vain. That as difficult as these things were, God was going to use their difficulties. And even the things, that, the way they were responding to those difficulties, the way they were responding to God in the midst of those difficulties was proof positive that God had indeed chosen them. See, we have to understand this, that God doesn't choose anybody because he doesn't choose any of us because we're better people, but he does choose us to make us better people. Do you understand? God has a plan for everyone that he calls to follow Jesus. He has a plan to make us like Jesus. And it's in understanding this plan that we begin to get encouragement with what we're going through. Now, I think it's important that we recognize today, I I recognize as as a pastor, that this message has a potential to really encourage you or potentially condemn you. You can feel like, oh crud, I must not be chosen. That is not the purpose of Paul's writing this to to uh, uh, those of Thessalonians, and it's not my purpose in preaching this. My purpose in preaching this to you is because it's what God's Word says, and I want you to understand what God wants to do when He works in your life. I'm hoping that you can identify God's work in your life, and you can say, now God has chosen me, He's doing a work in me. I see that. That's the goal. And if you get to this place where you go, man, I don't think God's doing anything in me, that you would say, God, please do. Please work in my life. So I want to give you kind of three evidences that we see of God's work, that Paul gives of God's work in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. First thing we see in verse 5, they were exposed to the real gospel. I say real gospel because you need to know both in Scripture and in life, there's lots of false gospels. Paul talks about that a lot, especially in the book of Galatians. But they, they, these guys were exposed to the real gospel. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, for our gospel, when Paul says that, it doesn't mean what he made up, but the gospel that he and his teammates preached, this good news about who Jesus is and what he's done. He says, our gospel did not come to you in word only. Now, it's important that we recognize he didn't say that the word part was bad or not necessary. He's saying that's not word only. It wasn't word only, but it was definitely the word. In other words, what he shared with the people was authentic truth. Now, you have to understand this as well. It was authentic truth, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was always a good presentation. In fact, one of the critiques about Paul's ministry was he's kind of not that great to listen to. And so the power of the gospel was not, oh, he's such a good orator, but there was something about the message of who Jesus was that was changing these people's lives. In fact, this is, this is what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church about his own ministry there. Listen to this. Paul writes, I didn't use lofty words or impress an impressive wisdom to tell you of God's secret plan, but I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. 
He said, I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather, use, never using, uh, I'm sorry, rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, he says, I relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would not trust in human wisdom, but in the power of God. See, so don't, now Paul wasn't saying that trying to communicate well is a bad thing. That's not what he's saying. In fact, when Paul writes to this church that Paul writes, when he says this, the church in Corinth also heard a lot of preaching from a guy named Apollos, and Apollos was noted for being an amazing speaker. So he's not saying good speaking's bad. He's saying good speaking doesn't change anybody. What changes people is the truth of who God is being made clear to our hearts by God himself, by his Holy Spirit. That's why there's a group, not a very big group, but a small, faithful group of people that pray every Sunday. They're praying for you. You've all been prayed for that God would speak to your hearts, that it would be bigger than anything I or anybody else could say, but that God would open your eyes to who He is. You're being prayed for right now. Because we believe, as, as happened to the Thessalonians, needs to happen to us. Paul says, I brought that gospel. And yeah, maybe it wasn't the best presentation, but it was authentic truth. And it's truth, Jesus says, that sets us free. But also, notice what he says in, in the same verse, verse 5. He says, our word did not come to you in, uh, our, our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but he says, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Now, the word he uses for power here is, a, it's, a, it's not to get too technical, but it's a singular tense. It's, the, it's a word that just means power. And so the idea here is probably not the fact that, that there were miracles being done through Paul. Now, God did miracles through Paul. Uh, we see throughout the book of Acts where God does miracles through the apostles to confirm that they are indeed from God. But that probably wasn't happening here so much. But what was going on is the Holy Spirit was confirming in the hearts of these people who were hearing that this stuff is true. This is true. You see, we really want to make sure that you understand there's an objectivity to truth, that we are not just saying, we hope you feel something. That's not what our goal is necessarily. We want you to understand that truth is knowable according to Jesus. He said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And because the truth is knowable and it's liberating, we want you to objectively understand what that truth is. But we also believe there has to be a subjective work, a work the Holy Spirit does in your heart. And I believe he's doing that work even now. Where your heart is challenged by these things. I've heard, I've heard so many times people that come to church and they go, man, every time I come to church, that dude's talking about me. And I'm not talking about you, but God's Spirit is saying, this is for you. He's the one tapping on your heart. This is what Paul means by the, the gospel came forth in power. God doing something in the hearts of people. See, the, the, the thing is, it doesn't always have to be this huge, dynamic, light bulb experience, lightning bolt to the head experience. Now, I'll, I'll be honest, you guys probably, most of you guys know, my conversion experience was a, light, was a lightning kind of experience. But you know, most people don't have that. My mom, who came to know the Lord, it took her 12 years, 12 years of her kind of, yeah, but what about this, and what about this? 12 years, keeping me up to 2 o'clock in the morning for 12 years. I loved it. I missed those talks. Until she finally kind of realized, I have a choice to make. Yeah, mom, you do. And by the grace of God, she chose to trust Jesus. 
The thing is, it's not always a dynamic experience, but it is always the Spirit's conviction, the work of God's Spirit in our heart to convince us, I need to know this God. Paul says again, same verse. He, just, he says it came through the, uh, in, in power in the Holy Spirit, but also look what he says in verse 5. He says, and in much assurance, and here's where this assurance comes from, listen, this confidence, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Now, we're going to see in a little bit that the kind of men that these guys were, Paul and Timothy and Silas, these were, were, were solid men. These were trustworthy men. But their lives, as the lives of the believers here in Thessalonica, were not enviable lives. They were difficult lives. And this is important for us to understand because Paul's talking about the fact that these guys were exposed to the real gospel, and he's saying, one of the reasons you know this is the real gospel is because the people that brought it to you were willing to suffer for it. This is one of, the, one of many reasons why I reject probably 90% of the stuff that's on the God channel. Because it's not about, it's not about hey, you know the kind of people we are. It's about, look at my life, it's, it's awesome. I serve Jesus, I have a jet. Don't you want to be like me? But that's not how the gospel went in the first century. The way the gospel went in the first century, the way the gospel is continuing to go out throughout the world is people willing to suffer because they know Jesus suffered for them and he's worthy to be followed. That gives credibility to the message. This is what Paul's talking about. They were exposed to a real gospel through trustworthy messengers, but not necessarily enviable lives. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Now, but the thing is, here, here's the, the first thing I want you to understand is, here's how you know that God's doing the work. He's making sure you're getting exposed to the real gospel. So you, if you have that annoying Christian friend that keeps bringing Jesus up, I want you to know, as annoying as that might be to you, it's probably an answer to our prayers. <laughs> that God really wants you to know who he is, and he's given you an opportunity to find out about him. He wants you to know the real gospel. Now, going, to, going on to verse 6 and 7, we, these guys also, not only were they exposed to the real gospel, but they also, they learned to be imitators. They learned to be imitators. Look at verse 6. It says, and you became followers of us and the Lord, he says. Followers of us and the Lord. Now, that might be a bit, sounds strange to you. Like, okay, why do we want to follow another person? But we need to understand what they're talking about is, that these in Thessalonica, they learned to not just follow Paul's example, but also Timothy and also Silas's. They were learning that, okay, we need to look at how these guys follow Jesus because we need to know how to follow Jesus. Which by itself, doesn't that kind of say something? That being a Christian is way more than just understanding concepts or truths. It's about a lifestyle change, a radical change. And, 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 and understanding those truths, we don't just need to get our head around them. We need to know, well, how do I live this out? And we can only know how to live that out by looking to other people and going, oh, okay, I see. That's what a Christian dad looks like. That's what a Christian student looks like. That's what a Christian employee looks like. We see other people walking with Jesus in those circumstances, and that's how we learn. Now, as I say that, I wonder how many of you guys are going, I don't know if I know anybody that I'd go, that's what a Christian looks like. I'm serious. That speaks to the state of the church right now. Not just, I'm not just talking you people, I'm not, or just you people. I'm talking about all of us in the West especially. 
But there's a reality that these guys, listen, they were looking for examples to follow. Paul says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 11. He says to the Corinthian church, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? And the author of Hebrews talks about the fact that we need to be imitating uh, all the Old Testament saints as well. Anyone we see in the Scripture who has been walking the walk, we should imitate them. He says, our great desire is that you keep loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are, who, uh, are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. It's good news for us. Because even if in our cynicism we want to say, yeah, but I don't really feel like there's very many examples, just open the book. And what you'll see is imperfect people learning to follow a perfect God. That's how we learn. Now, what's amazing about the Thessalonians is as learning to be imitators, they were learning to be learning from some guys who set a good example. The second part of verse 6, it says that they did so, right? They, um, that they were following, having received the word, it says, in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. I love the way the Scripture does. The New Testament always shows us about believers' lives. Much affliction, joy. Not just joy, and not just much affliction, but much affliction, joy. The, the, the issue is not, we're, we're a bunch of you know, sadists, like, please hurt me, I like it. It's not that. It's the fact that we know in following Jesus, it's going to be painful at times. We're going to feel marginalized in culture. Uh, people aren't going to always understand where we're coming from. We're going to make mistakes, and those are going to be pointed out very quickly. But at the same time, we can have real joy, not happiness, which is dependent upon your circumstances, but real joy because we know that the creator of the universe is doing a work in us, even through those afflictions. Now, Paul's saying these guys in Thessalonica, they did that. They, they, they received what the message of God, and they received it. Even though it brought affliction, they also had great joy. They were learning to imitate. Now, it's interesting because uh, the Apostle Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 3, talking about the connection between affliction and joy. Peter writes, if we, I'm sorry, if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. He quotes a couple of scriptures, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. But he says, notice, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. You know, one of the things that I am absolutely convinced of is that every bit of pain and suffering I have gone through as a Christian, which is minimal compared to so many brothers and sisters around the world. But everything that God's called me to give up, every time I've been mistreated, every time I failed and had to kind of deal with that failure, that God is using all of it to help other people follow Him. It's amazing. It's amazing how how rare. I, I can't really think of times. I can think of lots of times when people have been really happy for me when I've prospered and have wanted me to do well. I can think of people who aren't happy, but I can't think of any times when people have been helped by me prospering. But I can think of loads of times when people have been helped by my suffering. 
See, this is, this is what's amazing. That, that as, as human beings, we're going to suffer. It's, it's part of this, the, the junk of this world. It's, it's, it's why we kind of go, is this all there is? But here's the good news. In Christ, we have a, not just a great example, but a guarantee that all that suffering has a purpose. There's a pain for all of our purpose. And often that pain is to bring others to Him. And there's a great joy in that. These guys were experiencing that. How do we know? Look at verse 7. It says, so that you became, because you guys were imitating us and you were growing in your walk with Jesus, what happened is your, your imitation provided an example for others. That's what they say in verse 7. So that you became examples in all of Macedonia and Achaia to all who believe. I love that. This is something that we need to understand. You need, you need to know this. You... I'm talking to you guys who are already Jesus followers, by the way. You that are already Jesus followers, you need to know something. You are an example. Whether you want to be or not, right now, where you're sitting right now, you are an example. I'm not saying you're a good one, but you are an example. I'm teasing about that. Because here's the, here's the really great thing about God's grace, the really great thing about how God uses us. The thing is that, you know, you don't have to be a perfect person to be an example. You know what you need to be an example? You need to be two steps ahead of somebody else. Not so you can go, ha, I'm ahead of you. But so that you can say to that person, oh, I was just there two steps ago, come on, let's walk. You know what else you need? Examples of people who are two steps ahead of you. Oh man, how do I get there? And that person says, come on. Let's walk. You see, we need to be a group of people who are setting an example for one another. And you know what I found as well? I found personally that there are individuals, in this church specifically, there's individuals that are an example to me in one area of, of my life, maybe not so much in another area. But there's other people who are an example to me in another area of my life, maybe not so much in this other area. Which means I, what I'm saying is I need all of your examples. Just like you need all of our examples. Are, are you following me? It's not this kind of thing like, okay, who are the best ones? What's the cream that's going to rise to the top? No, we're all pretty much curdled milk, and God's changing us and making us an example to one another. This is what God's doing, and this is something that we learn to be. We learn to be imitators. It's funny how, how, how much this, this pans out in church life. Ever notice that, uh, especially in a church like ours, it's quite diverse and people that um, have come from radically different backgrounds, how different people sing, how different people pray. Have you noticed that? Different styles of prayer and stuff like that. Some of that, not all of that, but some of that comes from just imitation. It's the kind of church culture that they are around. I think I've told you guys this story before, but I remember going to a youth camp once and there was a girl in the front row and, and during you know, worship and song, she had her hands raised and her fingers were kind of sort of a bit gnarled. And so I thought she may, maybe had some sort of a motor neuron disease or something. I wasn't sure. And I just thought it was beautiful that she was worshiping in that state. And then later on, I recognized that, that uh, down the week that there was like five or six girls in the same row, and they all were doing that with their fingers. I thought, What's, do they all have the same? And what I found out was, no, that their youth leader had, had, did that. She discipled these girls, and they just kind of imitated. They thought, I want to worship God. She worships God. 
Worship God means you gnarl your fingers. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's normal. But here's the thing. We don't want to just imitate a form. We want to imitate a substance. We really want to say, God's changing that person. I want to learn from them how I can change in that area. Are you following me? This is what was amazing about the Thessalonians. Just a, a, kind of a baby church, and Paul's going, I am so blown away by what God's doing in your life. It's so obviously that he's chosen you because you're learning to be these kinds of imitators. Lastly, one of the things these guys did is they gave, or they sought to give their faith away. Look at verse 8. Paul writes, For you, or from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. So, kind of just, just picture this. If you can remember the map from last week, you, know, you had Thessalonica surrounded by some cities that's on a peninsula uh, on the Aegean Sea. And the area he's talking about, Macedonia, Achaia, kind of covers the entire peninsula. And so Paul's kind of saying, man, we, we go to these different places and we try to share Jesus with people and they go, oh yeah, we heard of that Jesus. Those Thessalonians, man, they're nuts. They're just, they're just all about that Jesus guy. We already know about that. And Paul's all, cool. <laughs> I didn't even have to really preach to these guys. They already heard about Jesus from you. And again, remember, these guys have only been Christians for a matter of weeks or months. In other words, listen, what they're doing here is they were making sure, they were making Jesus known throughout their sphere of influence. You know, it's funny because sometimes it's harder for us to try to bring Jesus into our sphere of influence than it is to sort of speak about Jesus to a complete stranger. Have you noticed that? I've noticed that. I can meet a stranger on the street, and, and, and you know, this happens to me on airplanes a lot when people say, so what do you do? I say, I'm a pastor. I'm like, oh, and either they kind of just say, goodbye, and they turn away, or, or they go, oh, what brought you to this? And it's easy for me to share my faith with them. But then sometimes trying to encourage, you know, a neighbor to consider who Jesus is, I'm like, I can't do it. What is that? Part of that is, part of that is, at least in my case, it's not recognizing that the power of God is what I need to actually be that witness. That I need God to give me a boldness that's willing to take a risk. I'm not saying being obnoxious or stupid, but just take a risk. It's a pride to try to bring Jesus to the conversation. These guys were doing this already. They were seeking to let their faith be known. And we're not just talking about guys who are flapping their gums. Look what it says in verse 9. It says in verse 9, for they themselves, that is, these other neighboring areas, their sphere of influence, these people who aren't yet converted, they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. In other words, they knew about Paul and, and Timothy and Silas because the Thessalonians say, hey, these guys came, cool guys, real guys, guys who suffered for what they believed, and they told us about this Jesus, and we listened to them. And so these guys know this. They're going, man, they listened to you, and here's what they said, listen. And what matter of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In other words, these guys, their, their, whole, their transformation, the transformation of the Thessalonians was well recognized. It was no secret that these guys were being changed from the inside out. Now this issue of idolatry, 
To some of you, this might seem a bit strange. Maybe you don't know what we mean by idols. Well, let's be really clear. An idol is anything that substitutes or replaces the Creator God in our lives. An idol can be something that we have a superstition in. So, in many cultures, idols are literally shaped gods, you know, uh, wood, stone, gold, silver. They're shaped that represents so, uh, some deity or some power. In some more primitive cultures, they have gods that represent things that understand natural elements. And we in the West can look at that with kind of our nose in the air and say, oh yeah, superstition. <laughs> so foolish. But an idol is anything that substitutes or replaces God in our life. So it, it might not be a superstition like that, but it could be something, listen, maybe a bit more sophisticated. Maybe even something that seems good. See, we worship ideas. We, we, we say, okay, no, I, I hear people, this is getting really popular among a lot of uh, sort of people who are famous in the entertainment business. They say, I believe in science. Well, good, I, I believe in science too. What, what do you mean you believe in science? Oh, I, I believe science has all the answers. Really? Because most scientists don't believe science has all the answers. They know there's, there's, there's questions that science can never answer. And in fact, it's interesting, the scientists that I know, I'm talking about proper researchers, say to me that really what science is is just finding out about what isn't true. We do a bunch of research and we go, oh, that didn't work. Okay, at least we know that doesn't work. A lot of researchers are like that. It's amazing how we can say that human intellect or potential, that's the God I worship. A lot of people worship money. If I just had a little bit more money, then I'd be happy, then I'd be satisfied, then I could sort out my issues. But don't get me wrong, money is a very helpful thing, which is one of the reasons God calls us to be generous. But money shouldn't be worshipped. See, the, the point is this, listen. Our temptation, humanly speaking, our, our tendency, humanly speaking, is to either counterfeit God or ignore Him. This is what we do. This is what is, is really the definition of what sin is. That little, small little word in the Bible, sin. Sin is us wanting to ignore God or wanting to replace God, either with a God we make with our hands or a God we make with our mind. That's idolatry. The Thessalonians were not unique in their idolatry. What was unique is that they turned from it. What was supernatural was they turned from worshiping things not worthy to be worshipped to worship the Creator God who gave them all good things and had sent His only begotten Son to die for their sins. Listen, it's important you understand this. Again, I want you to be really aware of what I'm talking about here because Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 5, he says, For of this you can be sure, listen, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. A question that I've been asked several times is, can I become a Christian and still worship this? It might not even be phrased worship this. It might be just still honor this or commit to this. That happens, I get that question all the time. 
And what the scripture says really clear is, hey, there's lots of stuff that we're going to participate, uh, participate in that, that's cultural, that can be redeemed. There's lots of things that we need to be committed to that actually demonstrate the love of God. But the truth is, when that thing gets exalted above your allegiance to God, it's idolatry. And now I've got to tell you, we've got to be sober about this because the Bible says no one inherits the kingdom of God that worships idols. No one. Whether you make those idols with your hands or you make those idols with your mind. Please know I'm not saying this to be uh, critical. I am not saying this as a person who doesn't make idols in his heart all the time. I do. But here's the thing about idols. You can't just say, okay, I'll, 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 I'll try to make sure I don't take it off the shelf too often. I won't polish it all the time. I won't bow down to it. I'll just keep it in my house. No. An idol has to be for an idol to, to actually be the, the power of an idol in your life, again, whether it was made with your mind or your hands, for that to be broken, you have to deny allegiance to that and you have to, you have to make your allegiance to the one and true God. That's what the Thessalonians did. They, they denounced those idols and they said, God, we're serving you. You know, this is not just something that the apostles thought of. This is not just like some sort of first century development. This is exactly what Jesus himself said. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or God and sex or God in another religion or God in your family. You have to serve God first. You see, this is how God made us. He created us to see him as supreme. Because you know what happens when we love God supremely? When God becomes our motivation, then we're free to love others because it doesn't matter if they love us back. Don't get me wrong, we still feel it when people don't love us back. Unreciprocated love is painful. Maybe the most painful thing we experience as humans. But we're free to do that because we know that we're supremely loved and our our commitment and our validation and our love is to God supremely, which allows us to say, I'm going to turn from those things that I would want to worship. I'm going to worship God so that I'm free to love these people the way I'm supposed to. The believers in Thessalonica did that, and they had only been Christians for weeks or maybe months. It says in verse 10, that they also, that they were motivated by something. Paul tells us in verse 10 that they turned to living, they turned to, the, to serve the, the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom God raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We mentioned last week this reality of justice how justice and judgment are tied together. All of us long for justice. We see the injustices in the world and they make us mad, or at least they should make us mad. And we think something should be done. In fact, we get frustrated at this idea that there's an all-powerful God because we think there's so much injustice. If there's an all-powerful God, why doesn't he do something? And the answer is, he has and he will. God has dealt with injustice by taking on the sins of humanity at the cross. 
God absorbed the judgment that you and I deserved on the cross of Christ. And then God resurrected Christ. Jesus was, came back from the dead, showed that to hundreds of witnesses, the historical reality, and ascended to heaven. And that reality of Jesus' resurrection is evidence that the Scripture puts forth that He's going to come back and judge again. There's going to come a time when Jesus comes back and this Jesus that loves us so much is going to come back as the mighty judge and he's going to bring justice. He's going to end all injustice. That's what's meant by the wrath to come. That's a scary thought if you don't realize, if you haven't accepted that Christ has already absorbed the wrath for you. You see, the, the reality is, the fact that Jesus is resurrected, that guarantees that we're going to be. Jesus says this in John chapter 5. He says, I assure you that a time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. Are you hearing the voice of the Lord today? The conviction of God's Spirit saying, this is what you need to believe. This is who you need to trust, Jesus. You will hear those, those who, who listen will live. It says, Jesus said, the Father has life in himself and has granted the same life-giving power to his Son, and he has given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. Do, don't be surprised, Jesus said. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those who continue in evil will rise to experience judgment. What Jesus is saying there corresponds to what we see happening in the church of the Thessalonians. These were people who were idol worshipers. They were doing the same thing that all of us do in humanity. They were replacing God. They were ignoring God. And then God made sure they could hear the real gospel. And as they heard the real gospel, they thought, oh my goodness, we've been so wrong. And they turned from those wrong ideas and they decided, we're going to follow Jesus. We're going to trust Him. We're going to become imitators of those who are following Jesus. We're going to grow as Jesus followers. And they wanted everyone to know this. Their lives were radically changed. Do you know why? Because God is in the business of radically changing lives. 